God be praised for the reality of that good news, of that gospel, that Jesus lived, died, rose again, is exalted, and will come again. Lord, may that same Jesus be real for us, and in our midst this morning, by his Holy Spirit we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And for this slot in our program this morning, I'd be very grateful if you grab a Bible and for us to all have Bibles open in front of us. And this is uh, the letter of Paul to the Galatians, and chapter 1, verses 11 to 24, read to us just a few moments ago. Galatians chapter 1, 11 to 24, and that is opposite page 1169. There are some people for whom communication revolves eternally around the word I. Everything is about what I did and who I met and where I've been. And isn't it absolutely infuriating when the other person only wants to talk about themselves when all you really want to do is talk about yourself? (laughs) The good news is that Paul wasn't like that, Um, As a public service this morning, I can inform you that in all his writings, he uses the word you nearly twice as often as he uses the word I. Now, when someone like that does take time out to talk about themselves, where they've been, who they've met, what they've done, then we need to sit up and take notice, don't we? And uh, our passage this morning is, in fact, the most richly autobiographical in all of Paul's writings. And there's a good reason for that, and that reason isn't too difficult to find. It's clear from chapter 1 and verse 7, and a number of other uh, passages within this letter, that certain agitators had arrived in Galatia from Jerusalem with the intention of undermining Paul and his message. Paul deals in a second-hand gospel, they cried. He picked it up from the apostles in Jerusalem, and then he watered it down to make it easier for Gentiles. He's teaching that Gentiles don't even need to be circumcised, or indeed to keep the other Jewish laws. You can't take that man, Paul, seriously. Don't listen to him. Listen to us. Not so answers Paul in verses 11 and following. I'll tell you how I received my message. I'll tell you how the gospel came to me. And then he goes on to explain it in three different ways, two of which are negative and one of which is positive. So we have this morning two things about where Paul's gospel didn't come from and one thing about where it did come from. Let's take the, the, each of these in turn. The first negative, then, is coming up right now. The gospel that Paul preached didn't come from his Jewish background. Verse 13 and 14, Paul says, You have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, that is, in the Jewish faith, and how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. 
How he must have shuddered the Christian Paul as he wrote those words. Then he goes on to say, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now, do we see what he's saying here? He's saying there was nothing in my previous life in Judaism that would have prepared me for a positive response to the gospel, still less for my becoming an apostle, a messenger, a preacher on behalf of Jesus Christ. Now, the curious thing is this, that Paul's previous life in Judaism could have and should have prepared him to welcome the gospel. As a well-trained Pharisee, he would have been steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. He should have known that they are shot through with God's grace and mercy and forgiveness and redemption. He should have realized that they point unerringly to the coming of God's righteous kingdom. He should have seen that they predict with uncanny precision the promised servant king, the Messiah, the Christ. But he didn't. All of that was stifled by his devotion to all of those add-ons that he calls the traditions of my fathers. There were indeed a few gracious souls who were ready and waiting when Jesus came. Do you remember Simeon and Anna, who scarcely get a mention apart from the, Christmas, uh, apart from the Sunday after Christmas? Wonderfully gracious souls, Simeon and Anna, who at the time of Jesus' birth were waiting for the consolation of Israel and for the redemption of Jerusalem. They welcomed Jesus even as a newborn baby. And as Simeon held the baby Jesus in his arms, he praised God that he'd been allowed to see the Lord's Christ before he died. And then if we jump to the end of Jesus' earthly life, there was a leading member of the Jewish council named Joseph of Arimathea. He too had been patiently waiting for the kingdom of God and he became a firm disciple of Jesus. But Paul the Pharisee, well, I'm afraid that he was a very different kettle of loaves and fishes. I cannot see that an unconverted Paul would have tolerated Christ any more than he actually tolerated Christians. Paul would have been at the forefront when, he, when it came to plotting to crucify Jesus, just as he actually was at the forefront in the scheme to murder Jesus' followers. Paul the Pharisee, I think, would have fallen under the stinging rebuke of Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. When Jesus says, in effect, you teachers of the law and Pharisees may be blameless regarding the outward observance of the law, but you have neglected its weightier matters, justice, mercy, faithfulness. In that same chapter, our Lord chillingly described such people as whitewashed tombs, glistening on the outside, but dead 
on the inside. Therefore, Jesus goes on to say, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. Now, is that not a painfully accurate description of what Paul, the Pharisee, actually did? And does that not match his self-portrait here in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 13? How intensely, he said, I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Paul summarized his own former life in his first letter to Timothy in chapter 1. I had been, he says, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. So here's the point. There was nothing in Paul's upbringing in Judaism that made him a likely candidate for faith in Jesus Christ, let alone for a role as apostle to the Gentiles. Now, do we believe that God can and does turn the unlikeliest of men and women into disciples of Jesus Christ? We sometimes pray, don't we, pray longingly and expectantly for certain people because in our eyes they seem so close to the kingdom of God. But the case of Paul encourages us to raise our expectations and pray believingly for those who seem to us to to be still so far away. Truly, God chooses unexpected people to do amazing things. So there's Our first negative, Paul's gospel didn't come from his Jewish upbringing. Now for the second negative, the gospel that Paul preached didn't come from any of the other disciples, uh, any of the other apostles. When God called me to be a preacher of the gospel, Paul explains in chapter 1, verse 16 and following, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Later again, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea, that is, the churches around Jerusalem that are in Christ. Here is a period of 14 years, Paul is saying in effect, during which I scarcely set foot in Jerusalem and spent hardly any time with the other apostles, Peter and James and the others. During that entire period of 14 years, I spent precisely a fortnight with those other apostles in Jerusalem. No way did I get my gospel, my message, secondhand from them. And do you know what? He will go on to say in chapter 2, When I did finally arrive in Jerusalem, the other apostles agreed with me in every respect. They added nothing to my message. In fact, if there was any wavering at all, it was on their side rather than on mine. Paul had an independence of mind. He knew where he stood. And let me ask you, do we share something of Paul's independence of mind? Have we made faith in Jesus Christ our own? Do we believe and trust in a God who has acted and spoken despite what men 
and women might say? Are we able to resist the temptation to trim our convictions to fit the fashions of the day? Will we be able to sing with confidence at the end of this service, I know whom I have believed? So there's our second negative. Paul's gospel, Paul's message did not come from the other apostles. So then, if it didn't come from his Jewish upbringing or from the other apostles, where did Paul's message come from? So here's our positive this morning. Paul's gospel came directly from God. I received it, he says in verse 11, by revelation from Jesus Christ. And in verses 15 and 16, God was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What a shock it must have been for Paul to see that blinding light and to hear that voice say to him on the road to Damascus, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. A shock, a surprise to Paul, but you know God had been planning it all along. God, he says in verse 15, had set me apart from birth. That is to say, God had marked Paul out to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to be a preacher of the gospel long before Paul himself was aware of it or could have had anything to do with it. Now, Paul had a particular reason for defending the divine authority of his message. It wasn't, as we have seen, because he likes to talk about himself, but because he is jealous for the truth of the gospel. His message then was under threat, as we have seen. And you don't need me to tell you that Paul's teaching continues to be under threat today. Paul is sometimes thought difficult and dry or harsh and stern compared with what we see as the open-air freshness and gentle compassion that we find in the Jesus of the Gospels. And so too often an attempt is made to drive a wedge between Jesus and Paul, between the master and his servant. A generation ago, Lord Beaverbrook claimed that Paul was incapable by nature of understanding the spirit of the master. He did damage to Christianity and left his imprint by wiping out many of the traces of the footsteps of his master. Much more recently, the novelist Philip Pullman, well-known writer of children's uh, stories, uh, books, uh, has imagined that Jesus Christ was not one but two characters. The good man, Jesus, and the scoundrel, Christ. The good man, Jesus, is the Jesus of the Gospels, minus those difficult and challenging bits, whereas the scoundrel, Christ, looks rather more like the Christ of Paul's letters. But as the late John Stott wisely said when commenting about these attempts to drive, to separate out Jesus and Paul. Paul cannot have misrepresented Christ if he was communicating a special revelation of Christ, which is precisely what he claims in Galatians 1. Do we believe him? And now, conclusion. Finally, 
in verse 23, we read that those who had not met Paul, those Christians who had not met Paul, but had heard about what God had been doing through him, praised God because of him. They praised God, verse 23, because of me, writes Paul. And we too, you know, have reason to praise God because of this man, Paul. Because it was he who saw saw more clearly than anyone else the universal scope of the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a gift to the whole world, for Gentiles as well as Jews, for women as well as men, for slaves as well as free, for everyone. And it's not about doing God's law, either in whole or in part. It's about grace from beginning to end. That's why Paul was so passionate to show what a difference it had made in his own life. That's why he was so keen to show that his gospel was no second-hand affair. That's why he wanted people to know that he received it by revelation, a revelation from Jesus Christ, which was also a revelation of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the entire storyline of your word, the scriptures, the Bible. We thank you for Moses and the way in which you called him unexpectedly to do amazing things. We thank you that he was able to lay, in so many ways, the foundation of what we now think and know and feel and do. We thank you for the prophets who gathered together materials concerning you and your being and your grace. We thank you for the gospel writers who raised up the walls of this great building of truth. And we thank you for Paul, who finished the structure and put it on display to the whole world in all its beauty and glory, so that people like we might find ourselves unexpectedly and yet amazingly called by grace to be members of your kingdom, to be forgiven for our sins, and be given a work to do in the service and the work of the gospel. Amen.